Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Christian Bale is a fairly well-known actor. You might recognize him from playing Batman in a series of films. But Christian Bale starred in a lesser-known film just before starring as Batman, and that film was called The Machinist, in which he went to rather extreme lengths to play the part, going from about 173 pounds to 110 pounds in order to play a character who was unable to sleep for about a year and was wasting away due to a refusal to come clean about a crime that he had committed. And so The Machinist is one of many explorations of this psychological anguish that accompanies the suppression of guilt and the overwhelming weight of unconfessed sins. There's many stories like this. In fact, the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky's 1866 work, Crime and Punishment, probes this very theme, unconfessed crimes and sins. And therapists have long been aware of the value of confession for mental health. Elizabeth Todd, who is a psychiatric mental health nurse, writes in an article, the curative effect of confession has been known for centuries. The curative effect of confession has been known for centuries. And indeed she is right, because 3,000 years ago, King David shares with us his experience of unconfessed sin. We find it in Psalm 32, where he writes these words to the Lord. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. It's wasting away. He goes on to say, For day and night your hand, speaking to the Lord, was heavy upon me. And I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And so there was freedom. There was uh, the hope of being absolved of those sins as David confessed. But while Psalm 32 reminds us of the importance and the value of confessing our sins, Psalm 32 doesn't actually tell us how to do it, how to confess our sins. But thankfully, David wrote another psalm under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that provides us with a template for confessing our sins and what that should sound like and what that should include. Much like what Jesus provides for us in the Lord's Prayer regarding prayer, David furnishes us with a guide to confessing our sins in Psalm 51. So that's a psalm that we want to look at this morning, Psalm 51. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to that psalm, Psalm 51. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to locate a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you, and that psalm can be found on page 271. We are going to be looking at the entire psalm this morning, uh, all 19 verses. So if you're able, I invite you to stand now for the reading of God's Word from Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach the wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and then bowls will be offered on your altar. Grass withers, flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, David models at least four things here to us about confessing our sins to God. Confessing privately and personally, that's the context of this psalm, confessing our sins to God in Psalm 51. We can start with this, blatantly admit to personal guilt. Blatantly admit to personal guilt. Now notice, we're told that this psalm is occasioned by Nathan the prophet coming to David and confronting him regarding his sins after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then arranged for her husband Uriah to be killed on the battlefield. And so David's adultery and his murder has now been exposed by Nathan the prophet. How does David respond to this? Well, it's helpful for us to consider how David doesn't respond when his sin is exposed. Notice that he levies no defense or no excuse. David owns his actions entirely as indefensible and inexcusable. There's no defense and no excuse anywhere in this psalm. You could also say that he doesn't try to absolve himself by pointing out his position, doesn't mention any of his past accomplishments, doesn't mention any of his past faithfulness. David doesn't say, after all, I'm the king of Israel. I can do what I want. He doesn't point to any past faithfulness. After all, David is the one who took down the giant Goliath and overcame Israel's enemies. He subdued the Philistines. He has countless military victories. He's the one who brought the Ark of the Covenant triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. It doesn't mention any of those things. There's also no mention of any extenuating circumstances that would justify his behavior. Ah, well, I was tired when that happened. Bathsheba shouldn't have been up there bathing naked on her roof for the whole world to see anyway. 
And if Uriah had just done what I arranged for him to do and go sleep with his wife, none of this would have happened anyway. But David passes no blame in this psalm whatsoever. Listen to the language he uses. My transgressions. My iniquity. My sin. That's what I mean by blatantly admitting to personal guilt. But there's even more. There's no minimizing or downplaying what he's done. He doesn't say, well, that was, that was a long time ago. It was many months ago when that happened. As if the mere passing of time has the power to atone for sin. But we sometimes believe that it might. It'll just lessen over time. But all these stories about unconfessed sin and the psychological anguish of suppressing guilt tell us otherwise. Time by itself cannot atone for our sins. But notice also that David doesn't refer to what he's done as a mere exercise of bad judgment. He experienced a lapse. He had a slip up. He made a mistake. Now listen again to this language that David uses. Not just with the pronouns now, but what he he says he does in verses 1 and 2. My transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. All these in the first two verses. He's stacking these crude and unrefined terms up and not softening them at all. In all of their ugliness, transgression, iniquity, sin, he'll later talk about the evil that he has done in the eyes of the Lord speaks of this in verse 3, and he goes back to these terms again in verse 9. David blatantly admits to personal guilt without any of these things accompanying them. This is all he brings to the Lord is his guilt. But notice that David doesn't just confess the guilt of his sin. David confesses the the guilt of his sinfulness. Not just his sin, but his sinfulness. Look again in verse 5 and what he says there. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, what David is confessing here to, to here is that his actions are not just some kind of aberration of his character. That what he's done is actually flowed from the wickedness that dwells within the depths of his very own heart. What he did was not influenced by that which came outside of him, but flowed from what was inside of him, something that belonged to his nature as a deep flaw in that. David actually does what is opposite of what we often hear and see today when public confessions are made. For example, when actress Reese Witherspoon was charged with disorderly conduct on an occasion where her husband was pulled over for DUI, she issued this as her apology and confession. She said, I'm deeply embarrassed about the things I said. I was disrespectful to the officer who was just doing his job. The words I used that night, listen, definitely do not reflect who I am. We hear this all the time in confession. So that's not really who I was. It doesn't represent who I really am in my character. David doesn't do that at all. David goes in the complete opposite direction and says, In sin did my mother conceive me. There's something deeply flawed in me that caused me to do what I did. Another actress, Sharon Stone, issued uh, an apology and confessed on an occasion when she suggested that an earthquake 
that claimed 70,000 lives in China in 2008 might have been karma for the way the Chinese were treating the Dalai Lama at the time. So she, she suggested that this earthquake might have been karma. Of course, there was backlash against that. And this is what she said in response. She said, it was unintentional. Those words, again, listen carefully. Those words were an accident of my distraction and a product of news sensationalism. And then she later added, I am deeply saddened that a 10-second, poorly edited film clip has besmirched my reputation of over 20 years of charitable services on behalf of international charities. There's not a hint of any of that kind of deflection in Psalm 51. David doesn't do that at all. Instead, David says things like this, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, I'm guilty, God. I am guilty so that you are entirely justified and blameless in whatever you're condemning me for. I'm guilty. And he owns that. He blatantly admits to his guilt. Now, when David writes, against you and you only have I sinned, he's not suggesting that he didn't transgress against Bathsheba or Uriah. He clearly did. But what David is doing here is he's recognizing that he has sinned against the Lord uniquely as the lawgiver. You see, David's sin has violated not the law of Uriah, not the law of Bathsheba, but he's violated God's law. And David also seems to recognize that sin is not merely a violation of some abstract law out there but it's also a betrayal of relationship. His sin is a betrayal of his relationship with the covenant God, which is why throughout this psalm, we hear him pleading for the maintenance of fellowship, the restoration of communion. For example, we read it in verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. My sin has placed me in peril of relating to you and remaining in fellowship with you. And so he confesses. And so this morning, is there something that you need to confess to God or to others in the spirit of Psalm 51? Is there something that you need to take full ownership of that you have not yet done? Do you need to stop bringing your defense, your excuses Stop justifying what you've done. Stop pointing to extenuating circumstances. You need to stop blaming other situations and other people for the things that you've done without minimizing the sin of your words, your actions, or your thoughts, but instead blatantly admitting that what you have done has flowed from the very corrupt nature of your own heart. There's something that you need to own like that. This morning, you might be thinking, well, maybe some minor things, but nothing like what David has done. I haven't committed adultery and put a hit out on someone so that they died. Well, maybe you haven't committed the exact sins that David has committed. But you might be closer than you think. Because remember that Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount that we can be murderous in our anger. And we can be murderous at the level of our hearts. 
with our anger toward others. And then right after that, Jesus says, whoever looks at another person with lustful intent has already committed adultery at the level of the heart. So even if you haven't committed these external acts, what are you guilty of at the level of your heart? What kinds of murderous, adulterous things are you guilty of that you need to own and confess in the spirit of this song? And if you're still not convinced that you have things that you desperately need to confess, I would encourage you to simply read the section on the Ten Commandments in the Westminster Larger Catechism, what's required by those commandments and what is forbidden in those commandments. And I'll be surprised if you don't have lots of material for a long time of things that you need to confess to the Lord. Will you confess those things? Will you own those things? Will you blatantly admit to those things and use this psalm as a guide to confessing your sins. This psalm that's been given to us by inspiration of the Spirit. But there's more in the psalm. The second thing that David models for us is daringly plead for purifying power. Because David doesn't simply confess his sins. He asks God to do something about them. Look again in verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And he continues on in verses 7 through 9. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David's request here is strikingly daring. He's basically coming before God and asking him to just push the delete button. Blot it out. Erase it. Delete it. Wash it away. Clean the slate. Remove it from my criminal record. Just take it off. Well, is there any kind of disinfectant or detergent that can accomplish that, that can actually blot this transgression and sin out. You know, if you've ever left a sweating cup on a wooden table without a coaster and left one of those moisture rings, you know that you, just, you can't just wipe that off. There's something that happens that all of a sudden this is deeply ingrained in that wood now. You can't just wipe it away. There have been times where I've poured twice the amount of water into a recipe than what was called for. <laughs> Ever experienced that helpless feeling? I mean, there's just, there's no getting that water back out. But both of those things would be easier than what David is asking God to do, to remove the stain of sin that is woven into his nature as a fallen person. How is that going to happen? David is asking for something that only God can do. He's asking God to atone for his sins. David knows that his own hands can't accomplish that. It's beyond his power to do that. But at the same time, David expresses belief that God is able to do that. Listen again to what he says. Purge me and I will be clean. You can do this, Lord. Notice that David doesn't stop there. He does say in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a right spirit within me. So notice that David doesn't just want his guilt expunged. He wants his heart transformed. So that his heart will no longer be charmed or enticed by sin again in the future. Listen, this is really important. The spirit of true confession doesn't merely want past sins to be forgiven, but future sins to be avoided by a heart that's been transformed by God's purifying power. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, freed from the law, oh blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. That's not the spirit of this psalm. That's not the spirit of Scripture. The spirit of true confession is to want to be rid of sin. So how about you? Do you merely want to escape the consequences of your sin? To not be condemned, to not be judged, to not suffer in hell? Or do you want a clean heart that hates sin and loves God? Do you want a clean heart? Do you want one? Or maybe all you can say sometimes is what I can say. And that is, well, I want to want one. Because I have to confess I don't always want one. I don't always want to part with my sins, with the pleasure that my sin brings. And so I have to admit I don't always want a clean heart, but I want to want one. And if that's, if that's you, then be encouraged because that's evidence of grace as well. So if you want a clean heart, and if you want to want a clean heart, or you want to want to want a clean heart, then ask God to form in you what only He can create. Go to Him and ask. But ask on the same grounds that David does. So that's the third thing that we see here, and that's humbly appeal to divine mercy. Divine mercy forms the ground of David's request from the very outset. Look again in verse 1, what we read there. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. That's his only appeal. The steadfast love of God and his abundant mercy. He doesn't ground his appeal on anything else. Notice that David doesn't promise any repeated attempts to do better. No strenuous efforts at self-reform. No number of personal resolutions to try harder. He doesn't do any of that because David knows that none of those things are going to provide the cleansing, the forgiveness, the transformation, the atonement that he actually needs. He can't make himself the basis of his appeal. But he does appeal to character. He does base his appeal on character. It's just not his own character. He bases his appeal on the character of God. The covenant God who is a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. Abundant mercy. See, David seems to know that God is not miserly with his mercy. But he's rich in mercy, as the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, that our God is a billionaire, a trillionaire, actually inexhaustible, inexhaustibly rich in his mercy. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin writing about this says it this way, 
God has abundance of variety of mercies suited to all the varieties of diseases of the soul. If your heart be hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart be dead, he has mercy to enliven it. If you be sick, he has mercy to heal you. Now here's particularly relevant in David's case. If you be sinful, he has mercies to sanctify and cleanse you. One of the reasons, not the main reason, that David stacks up his sins at the beginning of this psalm, my transgression, my iniquity, my sin, I've done what is evil in your sight, is because God's abundant mercy stacks up even higher than his sin. He's appealing to God's abundant mercy for what he's asking. Now, David may very well have had in mind God's revelation to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, when God passes by Moses and declares his goodness and his glory. This wonderful episode of revelation where God says this as he passes by Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You notice those three words? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. If you listen to this revelation, God is stacking up the terms of his compassion and his grace and his mercy and his patience. And so maybe this is why David knows that the covenant God that he's appealing to, bestows his grace on sinners. He knows that this grace is for sinners. It's for people like him who have transgressed. This may be why he says in verse 12, not for his salvation to be restored, but for the joy of his salvation to be restored. Because God's grace is for sinful people like himself. Because David's sin and your sin and my sin does not annul the forgiving mercy of God. Your sins don't cancel it out. Your sins are the reason that you need it. Your sins are the reason he draws near to you with that grace. But at the same time, notice that God adds in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, this other phrase. But who will by no means clear the guilty? God is just. And so how can David, how can you, how can I be the recipients of his abundant mercy and be cleared when we are in fact guilty? Well, only if another bears our guilt and our sin in our place. And that's what Jesus has done. And this should remind us that God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy doesn't come to us as a thing, as some kind of substance that he grants. His steadfast love and his abundant mercy comes to us in a person. And that person is Jesus. And it's in Jesus and his blood alone that we find the power to blot out our transgressions to wash us thoroughly from our iniquity and to cleanse us
from our sins. David seems to understand that he needs blood to atone for his sins. And where do we see that in this psalm? We see it in verse 7. And he cries out, purge me with hyssop. He mentions hyssop. Hyssop was a sponge-like plant in Israel that they would dip in blood and use in ceremonial cleansing. But you might be most familiar with hyssop because it's what was used to apply the blood of the lamb to the door frames on the night of Passover that would mark those houses of the Israelites with blood so that the avenging angel of God would pass over those houses and that they would not be judged because the blood spared them. David is hinting at his need for sacrificial blood to atone for his sins. He's anticipating the coming of Jesus. But what David was anticipating, we know more clearly because the New Testament tells us more than what David was told here in the Old Testament. We read something like this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, many of us know that verse, but don't miss that John tells us two verses earlier how our unrighteousness is cleansed. Because in verse 7, he writes this, The blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. There is a way for our sins to be blotted out. There is a way to be washed thoroughly from our iniquity and to be cleansed from our sins. It's by the blood of Jesus. And we can rejoice in the reality of that. Forgiveness is real. We can be exonerated. Our guilt can be expunged. It can be removed from our record because it was placed on the record of Jesus. And that leads to the fourth thing, and that's this. Gratefully commit to genuine worship. Notice in this psalm, it's in light of God's steadfast love and mercy, not in order to earn it, but in light of God's steadfast love and mercy, that David looks forward to restored fellowship in verse 12, to his readiness in teaching others about the grace and the greatness of God in verse 13, and to rejoicing in worship and praise in verses 14 and 15. He anticipates the reality of this in light of God's steadfast love and mercy toward him. And we know that David makes good on his commitment to teach transgressors God's ways and to open his mouth to declare God's praise. We know he's good on his commitment because he pens and he publishes Psalm 51. That's what he's doing right here. He's testifying to these things that are true of our God and his compassion and forgiving mercy. Remember that this is a painfully humiliating experience in the life of King David. And yet he records this confession, not to exalt his own goodness, but to testify to the depths of God's steadfast love, abundant mercy, and forgiveness. Notice that David does teach us one last thing here in this psalm, and it's this, that God is not merely after our external acts of worship. It's not what he's after. It's if we just bring these external sacrifices when our hearts are far from Him, and we're still clinging to the fruit and the desire of our sins. It's not what He's after. He's after our hearts. And so David writes in verses 16 and 17 these words, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And listen to what he says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
Now, we shouldn't read this and say God is disinterested in any kinds of external acts of worship. So we get to the end of the psalm, we find that burnt offerings are, in fact, being offered. But they have to be offered in the right spirit. God can delight in our external acts of worship because we have external acts of worship every Sunday here as we gather to worship. God delights in those if they come from a heart that is broken, that is grieving the reality of personal sin, and yet is clinging to the mercy of the God we worship. So does that describe you? Does that describe your worship? Grieving over the reality of your personal sin and yet clinging to, resting in, and rejoicing in the reality of God's abundant mercy given to sinners in Christ Jesus that is sufficient for our hope of salvation. Listen, whether you've been a Christian for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or longer or whether you've been a Christian for less than one year, less than one month, Less than a week. If you became a Christian yesterday, even if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, this is good news for all of us. And the good news is this. If you go to God with a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, confessing your sins and confessing your sinfulness, not just the external things that you've done, but what is woven into the fibers of your heart, confessing those things. If you go before God and blatantly admit to personal guilt, daringly plead for purifying power, humbly appeal to divine mercy, and gratefully commit to genuine worship, surrendering your heart and life to Jesus as your Lord, as the one who has shed blood for you on the cross, then you can know that God stands toward you is not with hands clenched to a sword, with elbows back, ready to swing for your execution at the first word of your admission of guilt. It's not his stance toward you. His stance toward you is with arms open wide, ready to embrace you, with hands outstretched where you can see the wounds, where they drove the nails in because he shed his blood so that he might blot out your transgressions, wash you thoroughly from your iniquity, and cleanse you from your sins. That's his stance toward you. If you would draw near to him with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And follow this pattern of confession that David gives to us. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, writes this. On that day we stand before him, we will weep with relief. Shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart that we had. It's more merciful than we can imagine. So there's two things that we can always confess. Our sins, they are many. Confess that honestly and transparently to God and to others. Our sins, they are many. But we confess something else too. His mercy is more. We're going to sing that in just a second. But let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you confessing our sin and our sinfulness, even as David, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has modeled for us here. Lord, we blatantly admit our personal guilt. But like David, we daringly plead for your purifying power that's found in the blood of Christ. According to your abundant mercy, we humbly 
ground our plea on that, your abundant mercy. And in light of all that Jesus has done for us, in giving his blood that cleanses us, we offer to you our hearts in worship. And we sing with joy that our sins are many, but your mercy is more. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.